0: You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Have a Bible with you. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to uh, kind of take a break. We've been doing a series in Colossians. We're going to take a break from that for this week and next, and uh, focus in on on the Passion Week, and then we'll pick that up and close out the the month of April with focusing on Colossians again. But I want to take a break and just I think it's very important during this. Passion Week, that we really focus in on on what this week is about. Um, the uh, well, what, today what we're going to do is the, is talk about Palm Sunday, and uh, it's a, obviously that's when we have palms everywhere here. It's because of Palm Sunday, and it's we're going to get into what that's that's all about. Um, but if you have the Bible, Matthew chapter twenty one, the uh, what we're going to do is Passion Week. Let me just kind of give you a little bit of a background about this. Passion Week is the last week of Jesus' life. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find out that the Gospel authors, all four of them, really spend a very inordinate amount of their material on this last week in Jesus' life. In fact, the Gospel of John is 21 chapters long, and the story we're going to read about, which is the beginning of Jesus' last week, occurs in chapter 11. And in all the others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it it occupies at least a third to 40%. Of the book. So, for some reason, the gospel writers felt this last week in Jesus' life was, was very important for you and I to know and understand and, and contextualize his life, particularly uh, in, in, in the light of this final week of his life. And it begins with Passion Week. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 21, we are going to uh, read about the very beginning of this week in Matthew chapter 21. We're starting in verse 1, and it reads this way. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you anything, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what, the, what had been spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a coat the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Verse 8, a very large crowd spread their cloaks Whenever uh, this is, let me give you a little background on this. Matthew is writing this, and Matthew is sort of an interesting perspective from the different writers of the gospel. Matthew uh, was a Jewish tax collector. He was called by Jesus and was part of his original twelve disciples. And we find out from church history that he initially spent time ministering to the Jewish people. He was in Jerusalem uh, sharing the gospel with them after Jesus' death, but. After a while, he felt that he needed to leave and go to other parts of the world to proclaim the gospel. But as he left, he wrote a gospel. He wrote this for the Jewish people to help them understand and describe for them who Jesus is. And he does this in a very Jewish context. He does things, for instance, when you read the gospel of Matthew, you'll never hear him use the phrase, the kingdom of God. He will always use the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And the reason he does that is because in many sectors in Judaism in that day, one of the ways they would honor the name of the Lord and they would uh, keep it holy was to not actually say the name God. They would use a phrase like the name and so what, uh, to refer to God. And so what, what Matthew does when he writes is he doesn't use the word God. He uses the, the phrase kingdom of heaven. And he's, he's writing from a Jewish perspective. And why that's interesting, why that's important is that when Matthew's writing this, there's a lot of things he assumes his audience know because they'd be familiar with Judaism, particularly in the first century, that you and I, in reading it, might not pick up on. So I want to kind of give you a little background before we talk about what's really significant about this particular event we just, we just read about. And as we know in Judaism, the father of Judaism was a man named Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation. And what Abraham uh, did, he was just an idol maker in a Chaldean land. And God called him to leave that and go to a different land. And he promised him that if you will follow me and believe in me, I will bring forth from your body a nation. And through that nation, I will bring salvation to the world. Now, Abraham was like you and I. He could look around at the planet and see it was a pretty broken place. It's pretty messed up and what God was promising him was hey look I'm going to fix this world but I'm going to do it through the nation that I developed from you and particularly from a individual from that nation which we will call Messiah he'll be called Messiah throughout the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament and so Abraham follows God and he's in this journey with God and he is you know uh, an old man with an old wife and he is wondering how on earth am I going to have a child and he's going through all these struggles and if you read his story in Genesis chapter 15 he asked God a question that you and I as we walk with God and journey with God are going to ask him at certain times and that is this how can I know how can I know what I hope will happen how can I know what God promises will happen in my life how can I know it's really going to work out. Now, we have those kind of doubts for a lot of different reasons. One is it's just what we do (laughs) as human beings. We doubt. Another thing, sometimes we may think that there are things in our life that we've done wrong. There may be sins we've committed, and we just think, well, you know, I think I may have blown it. Guilt and shame can manipulate us, and there's other factors. And so we don't know particularly why Abraham, the root of his doubts were. We knew that he was just struggling with this, and he says, how can I know? And so God tells him, well, I'll, I'll make this certain to you. And what God tells them to do is to go out to a place, take a couple of ox and some goats and some pigeons, and he tells them to take them and to split them open. He cuts these animals wide open and he parts them. And he he makes this sort of bloody path. These animal carcasses are parted, and there's this bloody path in between. And what God tells them to do is that we're going to make a covenant and in making a covenant like this between two parties God and this the party in the covenant are basically saying these are the stipulations of this covenant and if if i don't keep my covenant let what happened to these animals happen to me and god is basically saying look i am pledging my existence to this covenant and abraham's going to pledge his but something really odd happens instead of abraham walking through these pieces with God and making a covenant, Abraham falls asleep and he sees actually a flaming torch and a smoking pot, which is a type of sort of a theophany, an imagery of God. And God is moving between these pieces. And what would have told, this would have told Abraham something very remarkable, is that in Abraham's covenant with God, God is saying not only if he breaks the covenant, will he be cursed. But he's saying if Abraham and his descendants break the covenant, he will himself bear their curse. It's a really incredible story. God making a covenant with Abraham where it's supposed to be both parties agreeing to certain conditions and if they don't keep the conditions it is a very severe penalty. God is saying, look, I will bear the severe penalty of your covenant breaking myself. And that's what is, the beginning of the Jewish nation was with this man Abraham and with this covenant. And so it went on and went on. And so it is, this is, the, the Hebrew people have a hope and have an anticipation of, of God doing this through their life, bringing salvation through them. And so as Matthew gets into this, and we can read about this, this is a festival, a Jewish festival called Passover. There's three big Jewish festivals that occurred every year. One was called Passover One was called the Feast of of Tabernacles, and the other was called the Feast of Pentecost. And Passover commemorated the Exodus when God came to set Israel free from its oppressors, when God brought freedom to them. And, And this is the big hope of these people. It's the hope of freedom. And really, it's the hope of you and I individually that we can be free And not just in a societal sense free from an evil oppressor like they were. We don't necessarily have that problem in our country. But free from oppression personally. Free from sin. Free from debilitating habits. Free from guilt. Free from shame. Free from whatever is encumbering us in our life. And I want to ask you this question as we go forward. What is it in your life you would love to be free from? What experience in your past, what source of bitterness, what source of fear, what source of shame or guilt would you love to be free from? Because the Exodus story in the Passover is a story, it's a celebration of God's ability to liberate and set humanity free. And so this is at the Passover event. And the Passover event happened about spring of every year and it was a really big deal. It went on for a, for a week. And if we read about what Jesus was doing, Jesus was actually before this in Jericho. It's about 17 miles from Jerusalem and he travels from Jericho when he's traveling up the, the, the actually Jericho's 3,000 miles, 3,000 feet, excuse me, lower than, than Israel. So there's kind of an ascent, a 17 mile ascension up 3,000 feet and he's traveling through this place. And as he he comes around, and it's really interesting that usually at Passover, Israel had about, Jerusalem had about 50,000 people that lived in its city at that time. But at Passover, they would swell, and they would have maybe 150,000 more people there, up to 200,000 people. And it's pretty understood that this particular Passover, because of the impact Jesus was having in Galilee, the region he came from, that there were now just thousands and thousands more than ever coming to this Passover, And as they're coming in, there's these Galilean Jews that are coming into Judea. And back in those days, there was kind of an odd sort of relationship between the Judean Jews and the Galilean Jews. Judean Jews were from Jerusalem, they were more cosmopolitan, they were more educated. Um, And the Galileans were more their country cousins, more rural, not quite as educated. But they also were a little wealthier. It was kind of an interesting dynamic. So it, it would be kind of like Texas goes to Boston. <laughs> you know, and the relationships, but you know, the, the you can imagine the, the, the sort of academic, high-minded Bostonians and these loud, wealthier Texans coming in. And you can just imagine sort of the, that's kind of what it's like. So these Galileans are ushering Jesus in. And there are Tens of thousands more than ever have come into a Passover. And as they're coming in, they're coming down the Temple Mount. They're going into this extraordinary temple. And they are, they're doing something. They're taking their coats and they're laying them down. And they're making this sort of thick carpet for Jesus to come in. And he's, Jesus the Messiah is coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And people are taking these palm leaves and they're waving them. That would be kind of odd and kind of weird. But see, the reason the palm leaves are so significant is this was part of the Feast of Tabernacles. And whenever they, they would, during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jewish people would take these palm leaves and they'd wave them because they were saying, bring Messiah, bring Messiah. There was a way of praying to God, we want our Messiah to come. And so for them to, during Passover, to be waving these Palm leaves that are kind of reserved for the the Feast of Tabernacles would be a very odd thing. It'd be like you and I on the Fourth of July going to the park and seeing the fireworks, and then someone starts seeing Christmas carols. Now we we all love Christmas carols, don't we? But but on the 4th of July, you kind of go, well, this is a little odd, and this is what they're doing. And so Jesus is coming in and they're they're proclaiming this and this is this is going on, and there's this Incredible thing. And so the Judean Christians are saying, who is this? Who is this guy? Now, there's something very significant about what what they're watching here. And there's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. And this is why uh, Jesus is doing this. And if you look at this in Zechariah chapter 9, look at verse 9 with me. Zechariah 9 verse 9. This is a prophecy from Zechariah that happened in 500 BC. And Zechariah says this in verse 9 Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. And he goes on, I will take the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule, his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And then verse 11 says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that. I will restore twice as much to you. So this is the prophecy from Zechariah. It's 500 years before Christ. And what he's telling the people of Israel back then is that he's trying to understand the salvation that is going to be brought by the Messiah. And he says he's going to be a very unusual king. When this king is coming to conquer, he is not going to ride in Jerusalem like normal kings. Normal kings rode in on war horses. They rode in with a... A a white stallion that was big and powerful. Or a powerful war horse. Or they'd ride in on chariots. And they'd have an entourage with them. He's not doing this. He's riding in on a donkey that's never been ridden before. It's not very intimidating. But that's what he's coming in as. And they're putting their feet down before him. Could you imagine the president of the United States when he shows up? What does he wear? The president... Drives in the presidential car, it's a Lincoln that's plated metal and it's big and it's awesome and it's got dark windows and he's surrounded by black escalades. What would you think if the president rode into town for his coronation, for his inauguration and he was riding a bicycle? You'd go, what kind of, we're not going to intimidate ISIS with that, you know, that's not exactly but this is exactly what it's like. It's like a king writing it. You're like, what is he doing that for? But, but here's the idea that, that you'll see in, in this passage in Zechariah. He's saying that, that in this Messiah, there is going to be such a mighty, powerful demonstration of God. That there won't be any need for war. There won't be any need for coercion. There won't be a need for bows or chariots or any of the instruments of war. His rule will be a rule of peace and he will rule the world from sea to sea. And there will be no king and there will be no kingdom like him that's ever existed. This is what Zachariah is prophesying. But then he goes on here and I want to close this thought with you. Again in verse 9 and verse 10 he describes the worldwide impact of the Messiah. This ideal kingdom, this bringing of salvation to a broken planet. But then he says this in verse 11, Three words, as for you, as for you. You see, we can get excited about a world that's perfect and whole, and they could back then too, the Messiah coming and making things right. But he asks this question, as for you, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Then he goes on and says, return to your fortress. Look, here's a real powerful call in Palm Sunday. Here's here's what's happening in this thing. In this event, the God who had cut a covenant with Abraham, a covenant of blood, a God who had walked through those pieces and said, if your descendants break my covenant with you, I'll bear the curse, I'll bear the judgment to make this covenant work for them. He literally is now entering Jerusalem to do that. The God who walked through those pieces is now coming in, celebrated as Israel's Messiah, and in six days, he will hang on a cross and be crucified. And what he says there, as for you, my blood, the blood of the covenant will set you free. The blood of my covenant will free the prisoners from the dungeons and we'll set them free. And this is the remarkable thing we look at on Palm Sunday and what Passion Week is all about. It is about the inaugurating, it is the beginning of the salvation God promised to mankind coming to be through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is the God of Israel who became a human being actually bringing about the salvation He promised in the Bible. And that salvation is a salvation that will stretch out from sea to sea to the holes in into the earth, But it is also a salvation that will affect each of you personally, powerfully, and profoundly. And it means this you and I can be free from the prisons we're living in. You and I can be free from the waterless pit that we are in. And he says this in that passage return to your fortress. Return to your fortress. And Palm Sunday as we prepare for this Holy Week and this Passion Week, what it really is is a call to you and I to return to our fortress. Return to Him. Return and be set free. Return to Him and experience the power of His blood. Return to Him and get reconnected with a God who literally walked through the blood, bloody path and who literally hung on a cross and spilled his blood out, who bore our sins and bore our curse and bore our shame so you and I could really live lives that are free. Free. And this is what Christ offers everybody here this morning, each of us, is freedom from the waterless pit. Freedom from the waterless pit of bitterness free from the waterless pit of of addiction, free from the waterless pit of of sexual perversion and and, and binding sexual uh, impulses that we can't control, free from the pit of fear, free from from whatever pit there may be. He offers freedom from the pit. And that's what he declares to us today, freedom, freedom. I want to encourage you, to do that today, to return to the fortress, return to him, and experience freedom that he offers. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we just thank you for this powerful passage. We thank you for what it represents, the God of Israel riding into his city, Jerusalem. On a simple donkey. And in that proclaiming a, the beginning of a new kingdom. A kingdom of peace. A kingdom of harmony. A kingdom that is the consequence of human beings being united with God. And set free from sin. And set free from shame. And set free from guilt. Lord, I just pray for those that are here that are away from you. And I pray that they would hear your voice call them to return to the fortress. Return to your fortress and be free. Come out of the waterless pit, you prisoner of hope. Return to the fortress and be free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.